Hey, this is Todd Burns from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, our regular podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. In October 2016, we were so excited to welcome Pauline Oliveros to the Montreal Academy. She's one of early electronic music's most important figures, an original member of the pioneering San Francisco Tape Music Center, and offered up the sort of wisdom that only comes with age. We were shocked and saddened to hear only one month after this talk that she had passed away. In this conversation, however, you can hear her passion for the animating elements of her work. Deep listening, patient listening, engaged listening. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, as a celebration of her life and work one year after her passing, enjoy this bit of couch wisdom with Pauline Oliveros. Please welcome Pauline Oliveros. Which year was it that you picked up the accordion? I was nine years old, so let's see, nine plus two is... I'll help you, it must have been 1941. That's when it was, yes. (laughs) So if I imagine little Pauline back then, sitting in her room, playing the accordion, when you weren't playing, what was it that you were hearing? What was it that I was hearing? I was hearing all of the insects and birds and animals that were sounding in the Houston, Texas environment, which was very dense. It was almost like a rainforest. So that was the overall sound that I was interested in. And I liked uh, uh, I liked the cicadas very much and uh, di- all different kinds of things that I heard. So I was fascinated with listening as far back as I can remember. Was there any other sound source around that was human-made, such as radio? Oh, radio, of course. Um, I used to enjoy uh, my grandfather tuning his crystal radio. So I, would li- I liked the, the sounds of tuning the radio rather much more than the program. And my father had a shortwave radio, which also... I enjoyed the sounds of the shortwave uh, tuning as well. So those were sounds that I I liked. Do you mind explaining what a crystal radio is for those who don't know, including me? <laughs> well, um, the, the radio, the the device had crystals in it. I don't know that I understand or knew, knew what the what the construction was. It's just that I knew that that was called a crystal radio, okay? I think you can find it on Google pretty easy. (laughs) When you left Texas and went to study in California, at that time, was it already established to teach music in universities? Or was that still quite a new thing? Oh, no, music was taught, but it it was more uh, conservative, Uh, It was a conservative kind of music. There were no um, electronic music studios. Um, And uh, it was mostly centered on Western European music. What was the first time that you were actually 
laying your hands on a tape machine was that at San Francisco, as they call it? Well, the first uh, recording machine that I had experience with, my mother bought, and it was a wire recorder. So you recorded on wire. I don't know how that worked. <laughs> well... <laughs> it works with electromagnetism, and uh, and the information is stored on the on a on a wire, and it, you know it runs around like like a magnetic tape does, but it's, it's just it's wire instead of tape. Uh, the, the next thing that happened for me was getting um, a tape recorder for the first time again from my mother. She's very very uh, generous, and sent me a tape recorder. Um, it was uh, from Sears Roebuck, <laughs> and it was one of the first consumer models because uh, tape machines were not available in uh, until after the Second World War, and uh, veterans brought home tape machines from Germany. And in, in California, the Ampex tape machine, uh, Ampex was formed and, and, and produced tape machines. They were mostly disseminated to radio stations. So uh, that's how, how that happened. As soon as I got my first tape recorder, I put the microphone in the window of my apartment and recorded. And what I noticed was that there were sounds on the tape that I had not recognized, heard. So I tap myself on the shoulder now anytime I record, make sure I listen to everything. And I tell myself to listen to everything all the time. That's my trip. <laughs> so you went to California to study in San Francisco and there are a few people that you met and some of them you continued working with or communicating with for many, many years to come. So now... Until now. So where did you first meet, for example, Terry Riley? Terry and I were in the same class at uh, San Francisco State College in 1953, I guess. And also Lauren Rush, who probably is not as well known as Terry, but he's a very wonderful composer. Who else was part of your group? Was uh, Lamonte Young... In your yeah. vicinity back then? Yes, he was, but not until later. Um, what happened is that, that Terry and Lauren and I um, actually formed what maybe one of the very first free improvisation groups. And we did that because Terry had to write a, a film score, uh, five minutes, and he didn't have time to write it. So... We went into the studio at Radio KPFA where Lauren Rush was a program assistant and had access to that Ampex tape machine, right? So we sat down and Lauren was playing koto and percussion and Terry piano and myself, I was playing French horn. And so we improvised several soundtracks, five-minute soundtracks, without discussing what we were going to do. We just listened and played spontaneously and then Terry took one of those tracks and used it for the film but then we decided after listening to our uh, playback uh, that maybe this would be fun to do more so we started meeting you know several times and and uh, playing and recording we discovered that if we tried to plan it then it would fall flat 
But if we just played and let the conversation develop spontaneously, we would always get something that was interesting. What happened next was that uh, Terry and Lauren both uh, went to Europe. They had gotten their MAs, I guess, MFAs at University of California, Berkeley. And that's where Lamont Young comes into the picture because he was in their, in their class. And I visited that class once in a while and met Lamont and so on. And then Terry and Lamont got together to do some projects and so on. So that was how that, that happened, that, we, that Lamont began to be a part of the community that we were establishing in San Francisco. Yeah. This community or this group started the San Francisco Tate Music Center, or at no, least a few no, of you no, did. <laughs> the San Francisco Tate Music Center came out of uh, another uh, liaison, which was with Ramon Sender uh, Barrion. Um, I met him through my teacher, my mentor, uh, Robert Erickson. Robert Erickson was uh, taught a semester at San Francisco State. That's when I first met him and first heard his music, and he heard mine. And so uh, Lauren Rush, whom I've already mentioned, was studying with him. And then I began to study with, with Robert as well, with Bob. And then Robert Erickson began to teach at the San Francisco Conservatory. And he had a musicianship class that I attended, and that, that's where I met Ramon. And Ramon and I started to improvise together because Terry and uh, Lauren were already gone to Europe. So that was the next uh, step towards Sonics. Yeah, Sonics was a series of concerts that were put on at the conservatory. And they always included a free improvisation to begin with. And then we would play our tape pieces that we made. And then Morton Sabotnik joined us. And um, uh, we began to have uh, improvisations, including Mort. And uh, from there, the idea was to form a, a, a studio, a center for experimental music, so to speak. In the meanwhile, I was lucky enough to win a prize in the Netherlands from Gaudiamus for my chorus sound patterns for mixed chorus. So I went to Europe <laughs> for uh, maybe six months or so. And when I came back, Martin and Ramon had uh, gotten a nonprofit status for the San Francisco Tape Music Center. So then I joined in when I came back. And that's, that's how the San Francisco Tape Music Center got formed. How hands-on hands on did you get in your work with tape? Hands-on? Yeah, did you push, pull it? Oh, yes. Did you uh, there, there was the fact that my home tape recorder... See, I didn't work in the, in the, at the conservatory. I worked at home and I had the tape recorder, the second tape recorder that I acquired, which was a silver tone a tape recorder from Sears Roebuck. It, it had the property of or that I, function that I could hand wind the tape and record at the same time so I could get variable speed uh, recording. It also had two speeds, three and, a half, three and three quarters and seven and a half, so I could record at seven and a half and drop it to three and a quarter, three quarters or the reverse, 
record at three and three quarters and raise it to seven and a half. Those are the kinds of, of processes that were available to me uh, that I just invented for myself. Did you get involved in inventing and building instruments as well? I know that at one point you helped Martin Subotnik uh, push a piano down the stairs so it would break and you could reassemble it. You don't remember, but he you, does. I think you, he thinks that, but that was not me. Oh, that was a story that Mort invented, I must tell you. <laughs> Martin, if you're watching this. <laughs> Mort is very inventive. I mean, he has all kinds of... I, <laughs> this is not the first time that I've heard a story about me coming from Morton Sabotnik that is totally off the wall, not true. It's beautiful to know, though, that our past is colorful in other people's minds, isn't it? <laughs> so, uh, you know, someday there'll be some writing about what I did. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> But did you get involved in building instruments? Did you start assembling your own machines of any sort? Well, the, I would say that uh, the instrument that I built... Is, is an in interface that I designed. Other, I had to have programmers to, to uh, program it in Max MSP, but that, uh, first, at first it was totally analog. I got very um, interested in the distance between the record head on a tape machine and the playback head. That little distance uh, meant that you had a delay. Okay, so if you monitored both of them at the same time, the recording head and the playback head, which you could do, you could monitor those both. And uh, then you had the possibility of changing the amplitude of, say, the playback. Uh, and then when you did that and uh, you had the record head open, then you would begin to get a kind of reverberation. And that was very fascinating to hear, and so I worked with that. Uh, and eventually I started stringing tape from one machine to a second machine so that it would, uh, the signal that I put in would pass two playback heads. Um, you couldn't do two record heads or you would erase what you had already. You didn't want to do that. Um, so once I did that, you could create all kinds of interesting rhythmic configurations. And uh, that's uh, pretty evident in a piece of mine which is called Bye Bye Butterfly. But to answer your question, I consider the expanded instrument system, which I now still use and used last night in my concert, uh, an instrument. It's an environment. It's an instrument that you can uh, play and it plays back with you. Before you moved the Tape Music Center to Mills College, how... How did you finance it? What kind of space was it and how did you get it? We um, uh, had rented a space that had been, uh, that, that was on uh, Divisadero Street in San Francisco, 321 Divisadero. <laughs> that was our location. Um, it had been a, a uh, I can't think of what it was before, but it had a small uh, concert hall. Uh, where we could seat about 150 people, if we need, and we built a subscription audience for tape music there. Um, the studio was upstairs, 
uh, nice size room. Uh, we had uh, big equipment those days, not so miniature as it is today. No mixer, not yet. But the uh, we had a, a large telephone patch bay so that we could passively mix uh, sounds. I think we had two two big machines. They had been uh, donated from from Ampex for the for the Tape Music Center. Um, various other items, but uh, it was pretty basic. It was uh, considered what you called a classical electronic music studio because it was built out of equipment that was never intended for making music. It was equipment that was for testing in laboratories and, and uh, like that. There's an instrument developer who came by at the San Francisco Tape Music Center to work with Martin Sobotnik, and that is yes. Don Buchler. Right. Were you interested in his work at that point? Were you interested in synthesizers? <laughs> no. <laughs> I wasn't. I mean, I, I, I certainly have great respect for, for Don, and Don just passed away. Um, very recently, uh, Mort and Ramon advised him uh, because what had happened was they they had tried to be in connection with different engineers to see if they could get a modular synthesizer uh, according to the specifications that they uh, they were interested in. So uh, that that's how that worked. There was their collaboration with Don, and he produced the the Buchla modular synthesizer. And so when when Don was demonstrating that, the, I was upstairs making Bye Bye Butterfly. Uh, and the thing is that um, I didn't like the sound of transistors. Not after working so intently with uh, with tubes with tube oscillators. The sound of tube oscillators is different than sound of transistor oscillators. And so uh, the the frequency response of the Buchla synthesizer was, I mean, I couldn't set oscillators up to 40,000, for example, because it, I think the cutoff was maybe uh, 20 or maybe 30. I don't remember now exactly, but it wasn't, uh, it didn't have the range at the time, uh, of what what those oscillators that I had been working with had, so I had I had a little t hard time to transition from from working with that classical electronic music studio to the uh, to the new modular synthesizer. But I certainly did have to do that and did uh, when the San Francisco Tape Museum Center was moved to Mills College. Uh, Mort Sabotniks had been teaching there at Mills, and Steve Reich, by the way, was doing it, had done his master's there at the same time. Yeah. Steve Reich was involved in maybe the most famous piece that got ever made at San Francisco Tape Music Center. He was the, the premiere of In C. He was playing the piano, right? He was playing, but uh, well, that was Terry Riley's piece. Of course, but yeah. he, Steve Reich was playing. Yes, he was playing. He was playing, yeah. And another very well, kind of popular piece at that time was oh, uh, right. Martin Subotnik's. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, NC is still very much played in many places, yes. 
but Morton Subotnik's Silver Apples of the Moon was a very popular piece at the time also in, in sort of like broader right. pop culture, right? Right, yes. Did that lead to, well, pop musicians or rock musicians at that time coming to San Francisco Tape Music Center and wanting to collaborate with you? Uh, they came not to collaborate with us, but to learn about electronic music. And uh, uh, Anthony Martin, who was our visual artist, uh, began to do um, uh, rock shows at the Fillmore Auditorium in San Francisco and later in New York uh, at the Fillmore with the rock bands. So all the light shows that you see today had their seed from the San Francisco Tape Music Center. You, though, had studied in, well, a classical music environment. How did those people react to what, what you were doing in the San Francisco Tape Music Center, you and your group? Well, uh, they weren't exactly uh, interested. <laughs> uh, some people were. And so gradually, you know, things changed. And uh, with the move of the Tape Music Center to Mills, uh, Uh, one of the things that was important to me in, in the contract, this was with the Rockefeller Foundation, who they wanted us to have a responsible fiscal agent, and that was Mills, not us crazy artists. <laughs> Were you a crazy artist? I still am. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Maybe crazier, who knows? <laughs> You've said that the, the ICE, the, the expanded instrument system, has to incorporate. It is always about delays. Yes. So what, what is it specifically about delays that fascinates you? Well, uh, all right, so I'm, I'm an accordion player. Um, if I play a, a, a sound, I have very little possibility to bend it, you know, so if I played a sound and then had a delayed a delay sound return, I could I could bend it with my with a foot pedal so that I would send uh, I would have voltage control over the delayed sound uh, if I and I got to be a, quite a pedaler <laughs> um, so that I could control the pitches with my feet. Um, that were coming back. And so that's why delays were important because uh, I couldn't bend the original sound, okay? But I could certainly bend the second sounds or third or fourth, uh, whatever. Reverb played a very important role too, though, in your work, especially when I think about uh, one day in, actually in my hometown in Cologne in the late 80s uh -huh. in a very deep cistern that oh. you played. That's right, yes. In. Yes, right. Um, that, was, uh, that was a 45-second reverb uh, delay in the uh, uh, underground cathedral that was the water supply for Cologne. Yes, and there was a whole project. Um, uh, I forget the name of the person that it, um, uh, instigated that. Uh, so I was in Cologne to do something else, and I was invited to the cistern. 
And this was also very close to the time that uh, that Stuart Dempster and Paniotis and I went to the cistern in uh, uh, Fort Warden in in uh, Washington State, and uh, climbed down fourteen foot ladder into the cistern, which had eighty nine pillars and was made of uh, reinforced concrete, concrete, and had a forty five second reverb time. So, yeah, but that's where we met made the. CD that's called Deep Listening. Yeah. And it's called Deep Listening and is uh, oh, the well. namesake uh, for, <laughs> for, the well, uh, for the practice that right. you develop now over many years, actually together with your partner who's sitting over with here. I own. Yes. Okay. Um, well, maybe you'd like to, to introduce this practice to us. Yes. Well, first of all, I want to say that. Uh, Uh, because we were, we had decided that we had a release. Uh, we had to name the album, and so I came up with "Deep Listening," <laughs> and then we laughed a lot and rolled on the floor because we had been 14 feet underground. <laughs> deep. <laughs> so deep listening comes from a pun. Okay. So punning can be good, you know. <laughs> Can believe this stuff. I agree. <laughs> so what happened to then was that I started naming the different programs uh, that we were doing, deep listening. So we had a deep the first uh, deep listening retreat was in 1991. It was in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains in New Mexico, at a small retreat center where we were the only thing that ha was happening, besides a generator for electricity. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, so we had uh, electricity from generation and um, uh, water from rain, rainwater up there. Um, it was a very peaceful and wonderful place uh, to start this practice. And uh, I said, uh, you know, it was going to be a deep listening retreat, but I didn't know what that was. <laughs> so in the uh, in the next uh, I would say eight years I learned how to lead or facilitate I rather like facilitation rather than leadership um, because that's too hierarchical but uh, facilitation uh, then is more collaborative with people uh, and then uh, Ione who is sitting right here and uh, Has uh, has practiced listening in dreams as part of deep listening, and uh, facilitates what she calls dream community, uh, because when people start dreaming together, they they often have uh, experiences in their dreams which are relational, and uh, uh, so it creates a kind of. Uh, interesting community and it's not about analyzing dreams it's about uh, the creativity that comes from what happens in dreams so that's uh, part of our deep listening practice what she does and then the other part is uh, from Eloise Gold Eloise is a movement practitioner and uh, does Tai Chi and creative movement, movement so that's part also of listening through the body Uh, which is very, very important to to this this practice, and I'll I just recently had an experience which I want to tell you about because it it, it illuminates uh, deep listening very, very well. I um, for a whole year now have been working with 
Tarek uh, Atui, who is an improviser and composer and has commissioned instruments, uh, instruments to be built for the hard of hearing and deaf. So uh, in, in my um, teaching at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, Tarek was in residence as an artist at the Experimental Media and Performing Arts Center. And they, he needed to interact with some students, so I had my seminar called New in- Instrumentation for Performance. And the students, there were eight of them, uh, were uh, working on a project to build our uh, instrument or interface for the hard of hearing and deaf, which is a very interesting project. How do you do that? So that took a bit of thought and experimenting and, and uh, so on. At the end of the semester, we had a concert with the students' uh, projects, and then another concert with in, uh, in May with instruments that Tarek had commissioned. Um, and uh, then the next time to be working together was in Bergen, Norway, uh, last August, this past August. And this was the first time that I got to work with this project with actually deaf people. Um, there were three and uh, on the first day of my residency there, I uh, interviewed Ro- Robert Demeter. Uh, he's on Facebook as Demeter Robert, because there's other <laughs> Robert Demeters. <laughs> anyways, um, Robert was very, very beautiful and vi- interesting and, and vibrant. We communicated through a translator. Um, about halfway through, I decided the first thing that I would, I mean, the decision I would make was to be, to ask Robert to conduct my piece, which was called Sensational Sounds for Hearing and Non-Hearing Performers. And uh, when I arrived in Bergen, that's all I had was the title. <laughs> but so, so that decision to ask Robert to conduct the piece was the first, was the first kind of compositional decision, right? And uh, then there were two more uh, women who were deaf, and uh, we also talked. And then it was we had the musicians that we were going to use for the piece were from the Norwegian Philharmonic. And um, so there were uh, a dozen of those musicians, and I asked the three deaf performers to teach the musicians how to perceive their instruments or play them. Because I told the musicians they had to leave their own instruments at home. <laughs> that was another compositional decision. <laughs> no, And uh, so uh, the instruments that were performed um, were all instruments that Tarek had, had commissioned. And uh, so it was, it was so beautiful to see them engaging right away the non-hearing and hearing performers, uh, because of the relationship, turned around so that the, the deaf, deaf had something to teach to the hearing. And um, by the e- end of the evening, there was a two-hour time, the, the musicians were improvising with the instruments and uh, sounding pretty good. Next day, I gave them the first section of the piece, and uh, Ione had contributed to this by taking them through uh, dream processes so that their uh, creative aspect of their dreams was was presiding in there. And so the first piece, the first section of the piece was called Eagle's Nest, which was 
a dream name that one of the performers had had. Other performers had all kinds of interesting dream names, but this fit the section, and um, it was dream uh, Eagle's Nest Ins and Outs. So uh, Robert's task as conductor was to bring people in and take them out. Well, that was a simplistic thing. What happened was that they they started the the uh, to do this improvisation, and it was quite obvious that Robert, with no any kind of amplification device at all, was perceiving the music. Okay, so he was he 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 it was clear, he and he conducted uh, and gave the musicians expressiveness, and the expressiveness came from his. Understanding of gesture and uh, and feeling uh, and sensing at some level, which is probably the whole body, the music. So this was extraordinarily important to me. And uh, by the way, Robert conducted the the whole piece, which was about forty five minutes, to an audience of uh, that was sold out, six hundred people. The Venue was the former uh, Central Badet, which was the municipal swimming pool. So all the so most of the instruments were set up in the deep end of the pool, <laughs> which was appropriate, right? <laughs> Without water, right? <laughs> you could imagine the water if you wanted to. <laughs> I would like to say that um, it was a pleasure to listen to and listen with you. Pauline Oliveros, thank you very much for coming here. Thank you, Hannah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Oh. Thank you very much. <laughs> so, okay, so we should stand up too. Hey, this is Todd Burns again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a moment to tell you a bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and festivals. Almost every year since 1998, we have done the main academy event in one city. The lecture you just heard, for instance, was from the academy in Montreal. But we do events around the world throughout the year. In fact, we may just be doing an event near you pretty soon. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really does help other people discover the podcast. Thanks for listening.